Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. It has seemed to me this week as I've meditated upon the Beatitudes again that every Beatitude is another nail driven in a coffin. And inside this coffin there's a corpse. It's the corpse of a, a false teaching that says you can be saved without being changed. Beatitudes are nails in the coffin of that false teaching that says you can get to heaven if you just believe in Jesus whether you live like the world or not. Whether you're merciful whether you're pure, whether you're a peacemaker. Just look at them one at a time. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. If you don't obtain mercy, what do you obtain? Judgment. If you don't see God, what do you see? Hell. If you don't be, if you aren't called the sons of God, then you're outside the family. These are all descriptions of salvation, eternal salvation. And therefore, the Beatitudes are all spikes being driven into the corpse or the coffin containing the corpse of a false teaching that says, you just make a decision for Jesus one time. And it doesn't make any difference whether you're merciful, whether you're pure in heart, or whether you're peaceful. You'll receive mercy. You'll see God. You'll be called the Son of God. The whole Sermon on the Mount rings with this summons. Become a new creature. Get a new heart. The river of judgment is at the door. Look at verse 20. In chapter 5, we've seen this one before. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Then you go to the end of the sermon and you hear the Lord Jesus like a trumpet out over the crowds that are gathered there behind His disciples. And He says, He who hears My words and does not do them is like a man who builds his house upon sand. The rains will come down. The floods will come up. The wind will blow against that house and it will fall and great will be the fall of it. In other words, he who hears the Beatitudes and does not live that way will be swept away in the judgment. The nails are driven into the coffin of this false teaching that says, just believe, you don't have to be merciful, you don't have to be pure in heart, you don't have to be a peacemaker, you'll get through, you'll be shown mercy, you'll see God, you'll be called the Son of God, you'll be saved, you'll get eternal life, it doesn't matter how you live, false! The nails are driven in by the Beatitudes. You must be changed by the power of God. And so the Sermon on the Mount is a summons to newness. Be born again. Be changed. That's the meaning. And I have been pricked in my conscience this week as I've thought about this dimension of the Sermon on the Mount. I was reading a little book called Words to Winners of Souls by Horatius Bonar. It's one of the most in sustained books of intensity I've ever read. It's only a little thing, about 80 pages. And he says... Our words are feeble. Talking about us pastors, our words are feeble. 
even when sound and true. Our looks are careless, even when our words are empty, and our tones betray the apathy with which our words and looks disguise. And so I have resolved, to the degree that God gives me grace, just to be as earnest as I could this morning, to say that the point of the Beatitudes and the point of this message today is for those of you who are on the narrow road that leads to life to encourage you and strengthen you and help you to stay on that road. And for those of you who are still on the broad way that leads to destruction where there isn't mercifulness and isn't purity of heart and isn't peacemaking to, with all my heart, summon you onto the pathway to life, to call you and direct you to life behind Jesus Christ. So that's my agenda this morning. When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God, he doesn't tell us how to become a son of God. Let's not make a mistake here. That beatitude doesn't tell you how to become a son of God. It says sons of God are peacemakers. It says you can tell a son of God and the Lord will recognize his sons on the judgment day by whether they're peacemakers or not. That's not how you become a son of God. If you want to find out how to become a son of God, you look at texts like John chapter 1 verse 12, which says to all who received him, Jesus to all who believed in his name, he gave power to become sons of God, children of God. Or you go to texts like Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. In Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith. We become children of God when the Holy Spirit brings us to trust in Christ for salvation for hope, for forgiveness, for power to obey. We become sons of God through faith. When Jesus says in verse 9 here of chapter 5 that you are blessed if you are a peacemaker because you're going to be called a son of God, he means that sons of God are chips off the old block. If you're a child of God, you have your father's nature. And we know from Scripture God is a God of peace. Heaven is a world of peace. And God is a peacemaker. Oh, how He is a peacemaker. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting against them their trespasses. By the blood of His cross He has made peace. He's a peacemaker. So all of us are rebels against the king. And we deserve an eternal court-martial to be hanged by the neck until dead. And we're hiding in the mountains and in the caves. And all of a sudden, over the little shortwave radio, we hear the message. Absolute and complete and free amnesty declared in the whole world from the King of Kings. Amnesty. Terms of the amnesty. Lay down the arms of your independence and come home to faith. 
delight in the Father and walk with me in the light. Unbelievable gospel. Amnesty declared to every rebel on the face of the earth. Just lay down the arms of independence. Come home to faith. Delight in me rather than the mud pies of the slums of the world. And walk in the light of joy right into eternal glory. Come home. If there's any animosity, if there's any breach in the relationship between you and God this morning, it's not because he's not a peacemaker. He's a peacemaker. He is a peace-loving God. A peacemaking God. His arms are wide. His hands are extended. The terms of amnesty are very easy. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. You don't have to work to get to heaven. You just have to come out of the caves of self-reliance, independence, lay down the arms of rebellion, and go home to the daddy, like the prodigal son. So he's a peacemaker this morning, and I hope that nobody refuses the terms of his amnesty before you leave today. He's a peace-loving God, and therefore his children love to make peace. There are two ways now to think about your father and his character and your nature and your character. One of the ways is this. By the grace of God, we are born anew and brought to faith and given a new nature, the nature after the image of our Father in heaven. And since he is a peace lover and a peacemaker, therefore we have his nature and are a peace lover and a peacemaker. That's one way to think about it. The other way is to bring the Holy Spirit into the picture and go to Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, where it says... Because we are children, or because we are sons, He has sent His Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then in Romans 8, 14, it says, If you are led by the Spirit, you are sons of God. And what's the fruit of the Spirit that people bear when they're led by the Spirit? Love, joy, and then you tell me, peace. So whichever way you go at it, whether you go at it through regeneration and receiving a new nature and being a chip off the old block and being a peacemaker, or whether you go at it through the Holy Spirit who comes into your life and bears witness that you are the child of God and being a spirit of peace causes you to walk in the path of peace. Either way, the children of God have the character of God and therefore love to make peace. A peaceful people, not a warring people. Not a people who cherish grudges or are full of animosity. And I hope you can see from that, too, that we don't earn this promise in the Beatitude. They shall be called sons of God. You don't earn that. You don't merit that. Because we owe our new birth to the sovereign grace of God. And we owe our faith to the impulses of the new birth. And we owe to this faith the reception of the Holy Spirit. And we owe to the Holy Spirit the impulses of the fruit of peace.
And we owe to the impulses of the fruit of peace our being called sonship in the age to come. There is nothing for which you can take credit. It is all of grace. And therein lies our freedom and our joy and our victory. But the final salvation at the last day is conditional upon your being a child of God and thus being a peacemaker. Therein lies the earnestness and the seriousness with which we must read these Beatitudes and not take them as sort of optional suggestions from a moral uh, rearmament teacher. They are the path to life, therefore of deadly seriousness. Let's look now at what it is to be a peacemaker. My clue in answering the question, what is a peacemaker, came from seeing a parallel between the promise of sonship in 5.9 and the assurance of sonship in chapter 5, verses 43 to 45. I think this is Jesus' way of defining peacemaking by directing our attention to this parallel and saying something very similar in these verses. So let's read Matthew 5, 43 to 45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And here's the parallel. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. Now, notice verse 45. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now, isn't the thought the same as the Beatitude in 5.9? There, we must be peacemakers in order to be called sons of God. Here, we must love our enemies and pray for our persecutors if we are to be sons of God. That is, chips off the old block who causes his name to, or his son to rise on the just and the unjust. So I think what we have here is a definition of peacemaking, and it would go something like this. Uh, peacemaking is all the acts of love by which you try to remove enmity between you and other people. Peacemaking is the, the sum of all the ways of love by which you try to remove walls, barriers between you and, and other people. And then he gives two specific examples. Let's look at these two and try to apply them to ourselves. The first is in verse 44. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray. That's the first way to make peace. What do you pray? What should you pray for those you don't like? What should you pray for people who are always on your case or against you in some way, your enemy? Well, Jesus gave an answer to that question in the next chapter, in verses 9 to 11 of chapter 6. Very familiar instruction for how to pray for an enemy. He said, pray that the enemy's name or that God's name would be hallowed in this enemy's heart. He said, pray that God's kingdom would be rule in this enemy's heart, and he said, pray 
that your enemy would do God's will the way it's done in heaven by the angels. See that? Not just your enemy, but yourself. You may be at fault too. So you should pray, hallowed be your name in his life and my life. Let your kingdom come and take up its rule in his life and my life. And cause your will to be done in his life and my life the way the angels do it in heaven. And you know what will happen if God answers that prayer? Peace. Because the foundation of peace is purity. And that's what it is when you hallow God's name and when you live under his rule and when you do his will the way the angels do it in heaven. Pray for holiness in you and in others, that it might be a foundation of peace. Do you pray for those you don't get along with? Do you make it a matter of concerted prayer? If not, start today, tomorrow morning, and name them one by one. It may be hard for you because God might undertake to create a beautiful new relationship and you might be nursing that grudge and sort of enjoying it even. Maybe you had the last say. Beware, pray. Second illustration is in verse 47 of chapter 5. It says, uh, if you salute, or that is greet, if you greet only your brethren, what more are you doing than others? You remember, your righteousness must exceed the scribes and Pharisees. Anybody can greet a friend and a brother. Now, what's the point here? The point is that if something has happened in the relationship, if there's been a breach, an alienation, some animosity, don't cherish it. Don't nurture it. Don't nurse and feed the grudge and, and the breakdown in the relationship. Don't yield to the impulses of the flesh. Here's the way they express themselves. You're standing back there maybe outside the church office between services, and here comes that person walking down the, the hall that you hadn't spoken to for five weeks, and the last interchange was really red hot. The flesh says, look at the missionary board. Good. Took care of that. You didn't take care of it. Satan took care of it. That impulse is right out of hell. The impulse, when an opportunity to greet an enemy presents itself, the impulse to turn away for that and save your ego so that you don't have to be the one that humbles yourself and initiates some pleasant contact, that's right out of hell. That doesn't come from the spirit of your Father in heaven. The spirit of your Father in heaven is to make peace. He killed His Son to make peace with you. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. Now, when an opportunity to make peace comes, and you let the impulse of the flesh cause you to turn your face away from the possibility of greeting your brother, you have not acted as a child of God. You've acted as a child of the devil, a child of Satan. We've all done it. There's not a person in this room who hasn't done that. God will forgive those past acts. But if you make a lifetime of avoiding opportunities for reconciliation. You're going to bear witness that you're not a child of God. The Spirit is not reigning in your life. 
Instead, what you should do, what the spirit of peace does, is when you see them coming, you pray to yourself, you take a deep breath of the Holy Spirit, and with all the earnestness you can summon up, you look them right in the face and you say, Good morning, John. Not to cover your anger with a thin veneer of, uh, of uh, politeness, but rather in hope to give expression to a longing that a miracle might happen. By that smile, by that word, a miracle of reconciliation might happen. God might reach down and touch that person and you in that moment and make something new and lasting so that it didn't have to be cruddy anymore. Well, those are the two specific examples that the Lord gives. Praying for those you can't get along with and doing things as simple as looking them in the face and greeting them. And you can name a lot of other things as well. And now here comes a warning and a qualification. It might not work. There's a great realistic verse in Romans 12, 18. It goes like this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. <laughs> I love it. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Don't ever let the breach be your fault. But that, too, is a little bit problematical, isn't it? Really? I mean, am I a peacemaker if I take a stand for purity and somebody gets mad at me? My boyfriend, maybe. Or I insist on only taking a 15-minute break because the boss said 15 minutes and all the colleagues want to take... 30, and they get mad, and the relationships crumble. Am I still a peacemaker? I think so. I think so. Paul said, if it is possible, live at peace with all men. He, and he, he assumed it might not be possible because you might live righteously and speak the truth in all humility and lowliness. You can, of course, speak the truth and take a righteous stand in a way that creates animosity. That you must be careful of. But if you're a peacemaker, you will take your stand and you will speak your truth in love and in a diffidence that removes the guilt from your side. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, this is amazing. He says, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I partly believe it, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, what an amazing thing to say for a peace lover. If it had been the responsibility of the genuine to compromise their integrity in order to get rid of factions, he wouldn't have said that. It is necessary, he says, that there be factions when there's impurity and untruth in the community so that the genuine can be recognized, which simply is a way of saying truth and integrity, righteousness and purity are elevated above peace in the priorities of the apostle and in the priorities of, 
of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus said, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her father-in-law. And a man's foes will be those of his own household. Now, when he says that, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring sword. What he means is, if possible, live at peace. Love peace. Strive for peace. Pray for peace. Sacrifice for peace. But don't ever compromise your allegiance to me or my word, even if it brings down the wrath of people upon your head. James 3.17 says, The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. And look at the order of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, then blessed are the peacemakers, then blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. You see how sober and realistic Jesus was? He doesn't say compromise righteousness and uh, play down your allegiance to me so as not to incur the anger of persecution and blow peace out of the water. He says, there's not going to be peace in all your relationships. Face it. They're going to hate you. They hated me. They're going to hate you. And when they persecute you for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. You are not guilty. You are blessed. So Jesus is sober-minded and Paul is sober-minded about this. Love peace. Pursue peace. Sacrifice for peace. Live for peace. Pray for peace. But when it doesn't happen, you're blessed. If meekly and loving you, lovingly you, you receive persecution. Now I want to close with one last question. Someone will no doubt ask, how come a sermon on peacemaking in a world like ours confines itself to personal individual issues like prayer and greetings and practical nitty-gritty ways to overcome personal relationship problems. Aren't those personal individual matters insignificant when compared to nuclear war and armament buildups and peace talks in Geneva and civil war in Central America and apartheid in South Africa? and international intrigue and terrorism and religious oppression in Romania and Russia. Don't these little matters about whether you greet somebody or about whether you pray, don't they just pale in significance against the backdrop of these massive world problems? Why, when preaching a sermon, would you focus on the insignificant little personal things and not deal with the great issues of the day? Now, before I answer that question, let me pose another one for you. Was Jesus unaware that the iron hand of Rome rested upon this little people of Israel without their consent like a fist? 
Was he unaware that Archelaus had slaughtered 3,000 Jews a few years ago? Was he unaware that Pilate ordered his soldiers to move in around the temple and bludgeon to death a crowd of peaceful demonstrators when they were protesting his use of the temple taxes to build an aqueduct? Was he aware that one time, not long hence or ago, I'm not sure what the chronology is, Pilate had slaughtered people in the temple courts and mingled their blood with their sacrifices. This was a wicked governor. Is he, does Jesus have his head in the sand? When he spoke about enemies, why did he confine himself to talking about prayer and greetings and doing good to those who hate you and blessing those who persecute you and giving your coat away to an individual and turning your other cheek to a, to a personal smack? Was he utterly out of touch with his day? What about national humiliation of the Jews? What about Roman oppression? What about political corruption? What about unbridled militarism throughout the empire? Why doesn't he deal with something big? And the answer is not that he has his head in the sand. The answer is in Luke 13, verses 1 and 2. A group of people came to Jesus to tell him about a social injustice and atrocity that makes your hair stand on end. And Jesus answered, says, There were some present at that very time who told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered thus? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, do you see what Jesus does there? He takes a social outrage of injustice, and he turns it into a personal call to repentance. You want to hear me take a position about that event? Brothers, repent, or you will be slaughtered. We just wanted to know what you thought. Jesus does it again and again and again. You come to Jesus what about, what about Tiberius Caesar, this rotten, no good emperor? Do we pay taxes to him? You give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and you give to God what's God's you. You come to Jesus, what about my older brother, that rascal who doesn't have a just bone in his body and won't divide the inheritance with me? What about that, Jesus? Who made me a divider over you, man? Watch out for covetousness. A man's life does not consist in his possessions. What is it with this Jesus? Won't he talk about things? Why is he always looking at my heart? Why is he always pointing his finger at my soul? 
Why can't I get into a conversation with this man without feeling guilty? It's not the way he is. I'll tell you why. Here's what it is. Jesus loves you this morning. He loves you. And therefore, the salvation of your soul, the eternal destiny of your soul, any of you, is more important than the temporal destiny of a nation. Do you believe that? I do. The eternal destiny of your soul is more important, I'll enlarge it, than the survival of this planet. Nuclear war. Shall we live 10 years, 100 years? You're going to live forever and ever and ever and ever in hell or in heaven. That's a big issue. That's a big, big, big issue. So much bigger than whether this world lasts another hundred years. Don't ever accuse Jesus Christ of dealing with little issues when he takes his finger and puts it right in your heart and says, did you greet your brother in the hall this morning? 